Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. Adi was here for a bit, but he's very sick. So we, we told him to, to, to lay down and rest. <laughs> Hello, Adi, yep. did you hear this? Hope you feel better. We don't have a guest today, so we were wondering what, what we could talk about today. And um, what, what came into my mind is like that you build an application, right? And you deploy it somewhere and it actually delivers business value. It does it what it's supposed to. And then it keeps running for a month and it's fine. And maybe you have like a little bug here and there. You fix it, but eh, it happens. It runs for two months. It runs for four months. It runs for six months. And at some point you're like, I should probably update this. Right? I should probably check what kind of dependencies have been outdated now. Maybe there's a new Elixir version or a new OTP version. Should I update this? And... A lot of resources out there talk about, okay, like, this is how you build something with Elixir, but I feel not many, not many resources talk about, okay, this is how you keep things running with Elixir, right? Like, how, this is how you kind of tackle the, the boring, <laughs> boring stuff of keeping things running and up to date. So, Alan, how do you usually tackle this? What do you do when, when like, the thing has been running for a while and now you think, ah, oh, maybe I should update this? Yeah, it just kind of randomly pops into my head that, you know, maybe I should take a look because nobody else in the team usually takes a look at that. They're just kind of used to just, it just runs. And luckily with Elixir, it usually works okay for some time. And I just, you know, take a look and see what's the latest version and things like that. Usually I stay up to date about the latest version of Elixir and Erlang. But for each project, I run ASDF. So just to kind of keep each one and each one separate, mm -hmm. right? Because we do have some issues where some versions of some libraries are not updated yet. Yeah. And then also, yeah, just run hex outdated, see how it's going. I try to do that, I don't know, maybe once every couple months. I don't know about you. Like, do you guys have like a set schedule or a job or something that runs to see this kind of stuff? Yeah, well, what we've been introducing for a while now is a process, what we, we, we call it review day. That is just a regularly scheduled thing in our calendars. I think it's currently at a one-month cadence. Or, and we might have reduced it to two weeks now. Not entirely sure. Something like that. Where we basically, all the, all the backend engineers sit together for a day and just we have a checklist we go through. That checklist includes, okay, let's also look at cloud costs, right? Is there something maybe we're noticing like an increase in a certain area, but it also includes dependencies. So look at our dependencies, check what's outdated, check what that means. Is this like an upgrade we got to do? We also have Dependabot integrated, like as a thing, which is open in pull requests automatically. There's still a bit of discussion if you want to automate, automate those or not. I, I'm not entirely sure because auto-merging can be working if you have a decent test setup, which also test integration level, right? Like where you say, okay, yeah, maybe I have, for example, Tesla installed, which is used for API requests to an external system. You better have an integration test for that kind of thing if you actually want to auto-update it, right? So that's kind of things. But in general, we have this this review day, we call it, where we go through the checklist and do the maintenance things. And it also includes looking at documentation, for example, right? Is our documenta documentation still up to date? Is there something we, we, we need to change there? Is there anything outdated? How is our observability set up? Is there something we've been missing the past few weeks? That kind of thing. All, all, those, all those boring questions you got to ask at some point. That has been working for fairly well but just literally just yesterday we had a little incident it wasn't very big because it, like, it was a part of a system that's relatively new and not hasn't that much exposure to to users but basically what happened is we updated a bunch of dependencies also among them Tesla, merged that, tests were all fine, deployed that to staging, was running fine, deployed that to production. And then it turns out this particular update to Tesla actually broke our integration with Google PubSub in, very, in a very subtle way in that it's publishing things still work perfectly fine, consuming things also still work perfectly fine, but like processing the response of the publishing, that broke. 
<laughs> so our system was assuming, hey, this publishing here over there didn't work. So let me retry again. And the customer impact at that point was some people got a whole, a whole lot of emails <laughs> over a few days because the system kept uh, retrying. Like, okay, this this didn't, publishing didn't work. Like, let, let me publish again. Let me publish again. And they got like, I don't know, like 30 emails in a, in a day or something like that. End of the day, right? But <laughs> it's kind of annoying. And it actually boiled down to one line change they did in the in the decompression middleware. But because previously that didn't set any any accept encoding headers and then like in the new version they added the accept encoding headers for the decompression layer and it actually turns out that whatever Google Pub Sub sends a response like we haven't really figured out what exactly happened there but whatever Google Pub Sub sends a response apparently can't be handled by that particular decompression layer of Tesla even though it says like hey I accept gzip and deflate one of those two right and then whatever Google Pub Sub returns can't be decoded like that well, I'm not entirely sure why we haven't dug into that yet. It's a, it's a ticket on our back, like, okay, let's figure out what exactly happened there. For now, because the traffic on that particular part of the system is very low, we just, okay, let's turn decompression off for now. And then it works, since uh, it actually turned out that, that before decompression was also not working. Uh, decompression also wasn't being done because, well, the header wasn't there. Um, so yeah, but that is exactly the kind of things that can happen, right? Like you have you update a dependency, it does a little subtle change, not even worth mentioning all in all, but because of an integration and because of a yeah integration and like a thing which communicates with another part another part of the system or some external thing, it breaks in unexpected ways, and that is a hard thing to solve for. I mean, like we, we what we've now done, we solved the immediate issue, we, we captured some some tickets about okay, we need to figure out how we can avoid this happening again, and also how we can capture capture this earlier, but. But at that point, it's also like a unit test wouldn't have caught that, you know, I, I don't see us writing a unit test for that particular thing. This was actually like the combination of this header being there and then Google pops up sending something in response, which Tesla in that particular thing didn't expect. So you would have to have an integration level test or like an end-to-end test kind of where we say, okay, this is actually going through the whole three bang and publishing something to Google Pubs up, maybe a test topic, whatever, you know, but actually going through that, then you can kind of kind of make sure that this is working. And it, I feel that's always the age-old struggle about, yeah, in the perfect world, you would have that set up. And now we actually have a use case that we also can point it and say, maybe we should invest a bit more time there. I would very much assume this is a topic for one of our we have also monthly architectures or fixes where we just talk about bigger picture things like this. But yeah, I don't have a ready-made answer for that, for those kind of things. That can always happen. Yeah, then it's kind of like, well, I mean, if you start testing everything, then how do you actually get work done? You know what I mean? Like, you only have so much time. And that kind of accident, really a freak accident, or a freak accident, I mean, a freak bug or something where nobody was expecting this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm also not. I'm not entirely sure, like how to best handle this. Is this like, is this something you want to capture in a in an integration level test, where you just say, hey, we have this one thing which is integrating with an external system. Let's assume that it's running at fine, at least in like a few examples, probably. But you might also, and and that is like that is the point where I'm not certain how to best tackle that. For example, our application is running in, in a Kubernetes cluster, right, and that has um, ready probes and healthy probes. So we could maybe also have like a, for a ready endpoint actually say, hey, this is publishing, for example, something to Google Pub Sub, right? like to, again, to a test topic, just making sure that this publishing just works so it doesn't accept traffic before it ex- we kind of verify that we can do that. I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I've thought about this too, because I have like a microservice architecture for one project that we're slowly kind of bringing into all into Elixir. And I'm thinking like, because I don't know how to explain, but I mean, something's traveling throughout the system. And it'd be good to kind of trace where things go bad, like at which step, right? And that's probably a really good 
case for something like telemetry, maybe, where you can kind of tag it and then figure out, you know, and I guess you'd probably have to suck it into, what is that one called? There's Jaeger or something like that. I mean, sure, it, how you would do this kind of stuff. I can actually tell you how, we, how you would do this kind of stuff because this is exactly what we're doing. <laughs> so we, yeah, we are integrating with OpenTelemetry and we have an OpenTelemetry collector running in our cluster and that is collecting the things from from the, from this from our services or from this particular service and publishing to Datadoc. And Datadoc has supports for logs, for metrics, and for traces. In this case, what, what you've been thinking of is traces, right? Like where you kind of can see like each individual step in between, how long that took, what are the attached the logs for that. That is actually pretty amazing. Like that works very well with Datadoc. And then we also have a bunch of alerts set up in there, especially for like business critical things. But in this particular case, like this email being like being triggered through this event, that was that was not this is not like, not like an it's not like a a thing that was still kind of caught by by an alert because we have basically we have alerts set up that these kind of emails of this state uh, gets uh, people that users arrive in this state because if nobody arrives in the state for like a longer period of time then something is wrong we have alerts for that but we don't have alerts for you know we now send i don't know 30 emails per day <laughs> for the same user because for nobody thought of that before that that could, that could kind of be the outcome of things so i feel it's always the age-old struggle of you try to predict what could go wrong but you can impossibly predict what possibly can go wrong so there's always going to be that one thing which is kind of caught you blindsided and then the best possible case you at least call, catch it by your own observability setup and not like in our case because a user wrote to support hey i got this email 30 times <laughs> so, yeah. you should be useless because you have kids right you just get surprised by a lot of things that they do no yeah 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 i'm just like oh i never would have predicted they'd be doing that or whatever no yeah that is that is definitely true i mean the the, the number of unknown states uh, non-trivial system like just like the ones we are building nowadays especially um, how we integrate them with a bunch of other systems the number of possible states is so ridiculously large and most of them are unknown states and most of them are probably broken in weird ways <laughs> and you can't possibly predict all of them yeah um, and in this case it's also like a learning we would we would be taking away from that is also okay how, how often should we retry things like this because like i said it's a very relatively new part of the system so not all edges have been roughed out but probably should not retry this indefinitely for for days you know at some point it should kind of go into a dead letter queue i assume and, and so it should, should be telling you hey this is broken Look at this. And we have, we have kind of similar setups in other places of a system where we consume events. And if like that consumption fails, then it, after a few times it goes to the data queue. But this particular thing was not triggered by such an event. So like that mechanism didn't catch, didn't, didn't work out. But yeah. And all because we updated the dependency. Like there were some changes in there, but like it was a one line being added in a decompression middleware. That's, I'm not even sure we, we, we could have caught that uh, in this process we have set up right now because if, even if we looked at the diff which in this case we didn't but if you look at the diff in detail yeah okay they added that header cool <laughs> right <laughs> i don't think i would have thought wait they didn't if they added that header now what did it do before when they're using that in our google pub sub integrated so on and so forth like i don't think that would have crossed my mind and then again like you kind of have to figure out okay how can you can you make sure that that this integrations that these changes don't break any integrations in, in unexpected ways so how is it for you alan like how, how do you notice when stuff breaks and especially how do you notice when stuff breaks potentially after updating dependencies yeah that's a that's a good question i mean we we just hook up to i mean i guess it depends on what kind of breakage you're talking about right things can kind of break but you don't even know like I don't know, maybe a number doesn't get rounded up properly, right? That could be a potential bug where you're not going to get an error necessarily. 
for sure, we have uh, error tracking. We use log DNA. Uh, we look for log statements coming that are tagged with error or warning, and then we blast those out with an email or a notification of Slack. And look into the the log. We can see a context. You know, like what's the context like? What what, what else is happening before that? Get kind of an idea. Like for instance, there was something that changed in Absinthe where they actually start requiring a specific data type or something. I can't remember what it was, but something got more strict with Absinthe uh, GraphQL. And I noticed an error in there. And like we had to somehow handle that one because like we tested everything. We were running Flutter. We ran the whole app ourselves. Everything worked fine. But uh, one of the previous versions of the app didn't have the proper data type on it and it would crap out. And we found it out in production, basically. So we just kind of released like a hotfix and just told people uh, <laughs> update. Luckily, the app wasn't that popular at the time. And like it's yeah. not popular now, but that was like a short fix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that can happen. I mean, if it, it's especially bad when it happens in, in, an, in an app where the update, where it's not as easy to push out a quick update to fix things, right? Because in the yeah. our scenario, like I said, we, we just disabled the middleware for now because we're very reasonably certain that it didn't decompress before that anyway, and it doesn't serve that much traffic. So we're like, okay, let's disable it. Let's add a ticket. Let's figure out later how to fix this proper. <laughs> and that's like, there was a thing of like half an hour, right? Then it was fixed. Not as easy in an app. So you had to patch the library and send a, a PR? Or how did you kind yeah, of... Yeah, that, 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 is, that is a topic now we have to figure out. Like we, we want to proper have a ticket in the backlog, which is going to get pulled where we look at, okay, now what exactly went wrong there? What is, why why couldn't this decompressed layer not decompress the response from Google PubSub? What's, what's kind of the issue there? And then look at that potential, depending on what we learned there, open a PR to Tesla and to fix it. Um, but the immediate problem was fixed right now. And, it, it, and then, like I said, since it, that's not a big traffic thing, there was no harm in disabling the compression. Yeah, but that's not always possible. Was, or is this an issue on Google's side? Maybe. Uh, maybe I don't know. In a scenario like that, right, like where you have an active incident, the first thing you try to go for is fixing it, and uh, we have a reasonably uh, reasonable understanding of, of what exactly went wrong, not details of the mechanisms and what and how it particularly broke. And that is, I think, fine. That is also professional, yeah, professional software engineering to a certain degree, where you you have to choose your battles. I mean, at the end of the day, that thing needs to keep running and that thing needs to, to to continue to serve business value. And do we want compression at some point again? Yes, definitely. But it's not going to hurt us now. So fix the thing now, capture it in a ticket, um, write a pop-up post-mortem, figure out how we can catch this earlier next time without a customer writing us an email why he, why he received it 30 times. And then continue. I'm not sure we can do anything more than that. Kind of, I'm just thinking like, you know, if it was an issue on Google's side, it's, it's possible, right? Because everybody possible, yeah. makes issues. Uh, for sure, I've discovered an issue with iOS because we're talking you know, about Flutter a little bit before the show. For Flutter, there was actually an issue with iOS opening up like what well, it's called quick links or hot links or something like that, where you can you go to a specific link in the in the browser and it's going to open up the app for you and go to a specific page. I forgot the name for that. Deep, deep links. Linking. Deep links. Yeah, yeah. So there was a deep link bug like between patch release versions of iOS. It's crazy. And we had to put a, a patch in it because my, my client was like, you guys, uh, you don't know what you're doing? It's like, no. Like, it, like I was on the latest patch release. He was on the patch release in the middle that was not working. And then uh, another developer over here was on the patch release before that one. So it was like, he had, like, my developer had two. I had four and he had three. And it worked for me and the other guy and it didn't work for him. And it's always like, well, if it doesn't work for him, maybe he's doing something wrong, you know? <laughs> That's usually one of the first thoughts you have. But in general, like, I think I ended up having a, a one over here somewhere or something. Somehow I figured out that there was actually an issue. I think I actually just asked him to record the screen. It's probably what I did. And mm -hmm. I saw the, the bug and I was like, "That's that's weird. And then I went looking and it's like other people still reporting the same thing. So even things could be totally outside of your control. 
And that's yeah. also depends the upgrade, technically, kind of. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it is. I mean, like especially when you, when you are integrating with an external service, which honestly nowadays we all kind of are to a certain degree. Even even if you're running, I don't know, even if you're running your software on a machine at home, I don't assume you wrote the operating system, <laughs> right? <laughs> so like at some point you're integrating with somebody, someone else did. And at some point, you're probably going to want to upgrade that, especially if it's exposed to the internet. So yeah, at some point, you're going to have to trust somebody to not fuck up <laughs> because you can't possibly audit everything. I don't think that's that's, that's that's humanly possible. And then you better have safeguards in place. And like I mean, like I said, for, for us, it's not the question, okay, we actually now have, have a case. So we said we upgraded the dependency. The tests were still running fine over unit tests. We have a pretty good test coverage for that. But we don't, we don't have a lot of like testing integrations of external systems and not like, okay, how, how can we make sure that something like this doesn't happen again or at least we catch it earlier? In the best possible case, I would assume that we, would, that we could that we could have like a like a setup where you probably, like with, with review day, right, like you go through the dependencies, you update it, and then you deploy it to, to staging and on staging, you maybe have some mechanisms to say, okay, this is actually running for some additional end-to-end -end kind of test scenarios and it's going to alert you when something breaks. That is probably what, what, what we'll have to be going for. But yeah, it's difficult to find the right balance between pragmatism, getting things out of the door, and making sure that things don't break unexpectedly. And at least throughout my career, it always ended up being a, there's a certain base level you can always go for, but everything beyond that, you need a good good arguments you need to say okay this is something we should be doing because hey look at this it actually it actually broke <laughs> in this way so we better capture it and a lot of a lot of companies out there are more reactive on that side I mean, a while ago we had we had the uh, michael lubas right like well, from parallax paraxial io which is about security and there you kind of make maybe can make the argument hey security is maybe something you want want to be a bit more proactive instead of reactive but for like outages like that for for for, for bugs you're kind of forced to always be reactive you can they can apply experience and you can apply best practices but that's always going to be something which is catching you off guard and unless you have an sla that's life <laughs> <laughs> have you ever built anything with an SLA, Alan? Where you where you kind of I was in a company that had an, that had an SOA, but I wasn't part of that product. So I did see them scrambling. It was quite interesting to see because like the whole office was basically support. The real developers are actually in New York, and uh, there's support over here in Hong Kong. And for some reason, they had one developer, which was me here. So like every time when there was a bug or an error happening, it's all hands on deck. All these messages going out over email, and I'm just like thumbs like this, just kind of enjoying and eating popcorn and watching everybody run around like chicken with the head cut off and just, and there's not <laughs> much I could do, right? Because like the training, I didn't even get the training to even do that because they're like, oh, you don't need this because you're a developer. I was like, all right, cool. Not a problem. And yeah, it was, it's interesting to to see. And 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 actually the, the we kind of talk about that reactive, right? Yeah. Uh, I do remember one time, like, I don't know why they did this. I mean, they're making, they're getting like, tens of millions of dollars from one client and they decide to cheap out and just get like one database server and run MongoDB mm -hmm. on it before we had the asset compliance on it and they would just lose data all the time. <laughs> but but Mongo, MongoDB is web scale, Alan. Yeah, well, it wasn't financial scale, I guess. So we are, we're losing financial data. So... <laughs> Uh, what can possibly go wrong there? I don't see an issue. Yeah, I like, <laughs> oh I, well, I'm guessing they could probably redo it. I don't know, but I don't want to say exactly who it is because it could get me in trouble. But in, in any case, like uh, that kind of stuff is definitely preventative, right? Like every like all the DBAs know that we were not ready 
But it was like, you know, when you would appeal for more money to solve the problem, you would just get like, oh, no, you know, you can make it happen. It's kind of like, you know, what do you do? Right. They would and they're just beaten down. They just, OK, fine. Then <laughs> let the boss yeah. handle it when that we don't meet the SOA. I just do the best I can. I actually was once in a not quite that similar situation, but like in something similar where um, I also I have to be very vague here because I <laughs> don't want to step on anybody's toes. Uh, but basically, we had a customer project going on and the customer wanted to do something which at the very least was like a legal gray area, you know, and and at the and very I, most was uh, high treason. You're starting to say no, not not like that, but it was knowingly ignoring some things which you probably shouldn't be ignoring. Like that's that, and it boiled down to m uh, me saying, "Hey, I I'm not going to build this. <laughs> um, you can ask somebody else to build this. We can you can put it in production, but I want to to have it on record. I want to have an email <laughs> where." Where I can kind of point to and say later on, I was not involved in this, and I deliberately spoke up and said, like, "Hey, this is this is not what I would what I what I want to see and what I want to people to to be doing." That is also what happened. Like, we basically got 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 like some some something in written something in written form. In this case, it was just an email, right? Like, where my boss was saying, "Yes, okay, duly noted." Never came anything out of it. It was this wasn't really a bit big thing. It was something small. But still, okay, just at some point, we're just like not mentioning we are not ready. Yeah, at some point, it's it, it boils down where like we as professionals will sometimes have to say, "Hey, I I don't agree with this. I want to keep have that like noted down. I want to have like maybe even a written record of that because well, if things then if the hammer comes down, so to speak, then I at least want to be able to say, "Hey, man, I warned you. <laughs> don't put this on me." And maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. Now I'm kind of curious, right? Because I think uh, this is actually a discussion I had with quite a few developers before, where it's like, okay, if somebody asks you to do something that is that you know is not good, you should say no, right? Yeah. And I, I always get the reply from everybody like, oh, but like, but this is your job and your boss asks you to do it or the client asks you to do it. It's like, well, you're kind of the gatekeeper to a certain extent. Yes. I think, I think okay, to, to, to make an extreme example is, uh, would, would, would you write software for rocket guidance software? For like missiles, right? Like being shot on in war areas. I think a lot of people would say no to that. Like, no, I wouldn't do that. But if, unless you say yes, like, I don't care, I would write anything as long as I get my money, then okay, cool. Like, <laughs> you always say yes and never say no. But if you say no to would you write missile guidance software, then well, well there's the line. What, what would you do, right? And that is kind of what it boils down to here, where you say, okay, where is the point? Where you say no, and like, the example I said earlier, this was not not really like a like a big thing. It was like a, a data privacy where like, hey, we kind of are obliged to offer something here, but we can probably get away. Like a customer thought, we could probably get away with not doing it right away. You know, so uh, that was kind of the situation yeah. to be in. That reminds uh, me of a client where we were talking about GDPR, and there is like a very long wait period where you can just not do yeah, something. Yeah. So like it's yeah, but in this case, like I said, I, I said like I don't want to have any part of that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I, I think it depends on what it is that you're gonna do, right? Like for that one, I think he was like, yeah, let's delay on that one because we had to first come up with a plan about how we want to handle it, right? Like that's fine. There's within reason, right? But if it's like, no, let's just be shady and like pretend we deleted this person, but we know who they are, because I think that you can like delete their personal information but still keep their their data or something. So it's like let's you know let's not just put them Mr. X over here and then let's have a transcription layer of Mr. X is who exactly in another database, right? Like this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But speaking about like shady things, right? Sorry, but I mean you're German. I think this happened with a German car company quite a few years ago where they faked out the emissions, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it was the engineers that got 
most of the blame, even though management asked them to do it. Isn't yeah, that, 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 that is bullshit. I'm not entirely sure what exactly happened, but it, it, it's possible that it happened like that. And that is also, I think, like, where, where I mean, what you just said, like if a boss tells you to, well, if it goes against my values or if it even potentially, like if you're concerned as like an individual, even though you're not a lawyer, that this is going against the law, right? Then I think it's your your right to say no, but also sometimes maybe your obligation to say no. Because at the end of the day, we as software engineers, when it comes to automating things, we're the kind of the last line of defense, so to speak, right? You're the last person in a, in a chain of people which can possibly say no. And at the very least, what you can do is at least say, hey, at least I didn't do this, right? Because I didn't build this particular thing. Somebody else is probably going to build it. And I'm not very much aware that this is a position of luxury because depending on what your living circumstances are, you might not have the luxury of saying no, right? Like You might actually be concerned that somebody fires you if you say no, and that, then your livelihood is uh, in danger. That is not a, not, not, a, not, a, uh, not a luxury, not a privilege everybody can have. But if you have that uh, privilege, if you are in a position to say no to something you think is wrong, then I would actually argue that you kind of have the moral obligation to do so. But yeah, it's uncomfortable. I mean, <laughs> I'm not everybody who's ever been like, in a room full of people where you discuss something and then they said like, People, I, I don't think we should do that. I, I think that's that's wrong. <laughs> that is like a very vulnerable position to be in, but it's important. But there's another thing too, where people may not know it's it's like a bad thing to do. Like like if there's like a way that you can track people or something, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. do something that's more than what you should be able to do, right? Like let's say that you, the guy asks you to be able to remotely take pictures of the user because they just want to get more data. Like what color hair are they? Male, female, etc. Oh like, 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 I, it's a very weird, like, thing. But like, I'm just trying to think of something. I okay, maybe it's not the best example, but I'm trying to think of something that could be benign in somebody's head. Like, oh, I just want to know what the user looks like because then I can have an idea about how we can target them, etc. How old are they, etc. They say, can we? Can you remotely take a picture of them and 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 put it on our servers? It's like, well, that no, and then you have to explain why that is a bad idea. And yeah. I've had conversations where people are like, can you do this stuff? And it's like, well, probably, but it's not good because of these reasons. And they just didn't know any better, right? They're just more obsessed trying to get their software out there and make money. <laughs> so they're not thinking about these kind of things. So like, I don't yeah. think that everybody's going to be nefarious in their requests. I mean, some people are, but some people just may just not know and may not think about it. I mean, there's this saying, right? Never assume malice when, it can, when you can explain it with incompetency. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of truth to that, to be honest. But yeah, at some point along the chain, I mean, I would not expect from, from, from a software engineer to, for example, have like deep understanding of what GDPR means in detail and in practice. You should have a rough understanding about it because it's probably going to impact all of our lives. As soon as you build a, a product which is international, then you probably will have some people from the European Union, so the GDPR applies to you, unless you take explicit measures to exclude them, right? I mean, since some companies are doing that, they're saying, hey, we don't serve customers from Europe because, well, GDPR is paid in the ass. It doesn't happen very often, I feel, though. And of course, if you actually are based in the European Union, if your customers, uh, if your company is based in the European Union, then, yeah, well, you, you are subject to that. So as software engineers, we sh I feel that we benefit from having a, at least a superficial understanding of, of those kind of things and having a rough idea about like, this is probably not a good idea this is probably not, not okay to do but I would not expect from anybody and I don't think it's also reasonable to expect from anybody that like, you have a deep understanding of every possible law that could be relevant to to to, to you, the things you're building because at the end of the day that, that's I mean that's kind of a different job then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but if you if you know and if you or if you at least think it's not 
the right thing to do, then I think we, 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 if you can, you should, we should speak up about it. And if that you, potentially you're means using auto revenue, it's better to, to raise the issue, even if you, yeah. even if you're wrong, I think it's better to raise it. Should yeah. you care? Yeah. I mean, like you also have to pick your battles, right? Because I personally am not that fond of Google. That's just me. I don't like them very much. I think what the sort of things they're doing are problematic. So if I would, for example, now build a company, I would never ever reach for something like Google Analytics. But I'm a current employer by using Google Analytics. I'm not gonna. I don't know. I'm not gonna raise hell now, right? So that is also something where you have to pick your battles. But yeah, I'm not sure how we ended up here from from talking about dependencies and upgrading. But <laughs> it's an interesting yeah, topic. Yeah, it's still a good topic though because it's it's happened a couple of times in my life. I, I don't know. Have you had something interesting in your life? I'm oh, sorry, you did already. You had something happen. Yeah, so it it comes up. I don't know. It's important to me at least. Yeah, and I mean, like depending on on you, you could even make a crossover here, right? Like depending on on what your processes are for upgrading dependencies. If you have, for example, Google Analytics integrated to your website, uh, it might be possible that like if a later the newer version, they are even tra- we're tracking even more things, right? I mean, modern user tracking solutions, yeah, tracking a ridiculous number of things I, I don't even pretend to be aware of all, of all the stuff they're tracking. I mean, they're tracking clicks, they're tracking like how, where your cursor is, is staying for a while, they're, they're tracking how long you're staying on particular pages and so on and so forth. It's the, the level of information Information we gather uh, is is impressive. Let's say that, and even there, you could be saying, okay, if, I up, if, I, if you have a process for upgrading those dependencies on the regular, you might even include something which maybe doesn't even align with your own values without knowing. You know, I mean, there's also this. Wasn't there this this, this case uh, a while ago where like an npm package got got taken over maliciously and then it included yeah. like a Bitcoin miner kind of thing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. That is, I mean, the more obvious one which you don't want to happen, but still, yeah, it's a difficult problem to solve. And at the very least, I mean, Elixir, to maybe to come back to that, Elixir is, is help, coming with a few tools to help you make it a little bit easier. I mean, like you earlier, you mentioned Hex Outdated. There's also Hex Audit. So there are some some tools you can be using, especially for Hex packages, which make it a little bit easier to get a more informed, more more information before making a decision to upgrade something. To come back to what we talked initially, about, how how do you do language version updates? On like how often do you do that? Because that is also something I, I don't feel it's as n- necessary as as dependency upgrades, at least not into the same ca- in the same cadence, right? I think the dependencies you should probably keep up to date fairly regular but language versions that's the one thing which i don't know but that for, for me that's that, that's always been happening once on the blue moon kind of thing yeah i mean i guess around the same time uh, but i mean it depends what you're saying right if you're going from like otp 24 to 25 that's a pretty big jump right i think 25 had some breaking mm-hmm. changes in it that one depends i mean i may just try like mixed tests to see if it works okay and read the notes to see what's changed because sometimes things are taken out yeah, I, I basically did them about the same time because I, I don't, I mean, for the most part, things are pretty stable, I think. Pretty stable for the most part. Right? I don't know. I don't know about you, but like patch releases, I mean, like I haven't really had anything ever break necessarily before, even no, in two branches. No, no. We, we had one time, how exactly was that? I think we had one time a, a breakage where we updated an OTP version and that had an odd interaction with Hackney, I think. Like something, something broke. I, I don't remember the details, but but something broke there in like a weird way. So we actually were forced to revert back to an older OTP version, and that of course also was only caught in, or caught in, in production. And then at that point, I I'm also not sure what to do best. Like in the in the best possible case, you might maybe want like a setup where you can really do like a partial deployment, right? Like you can say, okay, now I'm I do actually doing a big upgrade here, and maybe like I have a rep, free replicas of this thing running, and maybe like one replica now 
is this new version if there's if you can do that right like there's not a big software difference between between the versions and and they can reasonably serve all traffic and then you kind of see okay is there like an increased error rate for 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 things from a new format but that's like also that's not trivial to do i'm gonna be honest i haven't done that yet i also haven't worked on a system yet where you could make the argument that it's necessary right like if you have like an sla for example or if you have like a very very big user base and a very um, a large a very big amount of traffic then something like that might be more necessary but if i could choose i, I would love to have something like that where you can say hey i, I want to deploy the new version of this and but i want to want to keep it running alongside the old one for a while maybe to, to like see if, if, if it's not erroring out in weird and unexpected ways have you yeah, ever done I'm, anything like that sorry uh like canary deployments yeah uh sadly no all my stuff's pretty <laughs> low traffic but yeah i mean i've looked at it looked into it, it doesn't seem too difficult especially with kubernetes they, they kind of is able to do all that kind of stuff, I think. So that's something that I was looking into. But yeah, it's always just kind of like bring up the new one and then the traffic just switches over and spins down the old one, right? That's how we usually yeah. do it. Like a yeah, this is also what, what I've been doing for the past years, nearly exclusively. The one thing I feel it, which is always not getting enough attention is the whole process of rolling back again. Like I have not yet worked at a place where that has been working smoothly out of a box. Like we've we've been I've been involved in like getting a bit of functionality there, right? Like saying, okay, maybe we want to be able to roll back more easily because again, reactively, something happened where you said, Hey, it would have been nice if you could have seen that we're doing that. But it's, it's always kind of been a been a pain, to be honest. Right? Like if you deploy something, it seems to be working fine on staging, then you deploy it to production and also maybe it looks fine. And then then you realize later, oh shit, this is actually breaking in a weird and unexpected way. It was never easy and never smooth to just, I don't know, press one button and say roll back. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had it where we just like go to a previous version that we deployed and then we just click on deploy and that one's going to overwrite the old deployment. But the tricky part, the really tricky part is if that one, like if there's a database migration in between, that's probably oh, the yes. tricky part. Yeah. Well, um, I would actually say here, because if any of you who's listening has has been doing anything like that, like having having worked on a more complex system which required more of these safeguards so to speak so for example because you had an SLA or anything like that and especially in combination with Elixir reach out because I think that both that could have been, been very interesting conversation to be had about like actually keeping things running and actually keeping things evolving I think that's kind of the challenge here right like to keep keep a system evolving over time while maintaining its stability because we've heard these amazing stories of, of Erlang systems which haven't been updated in 30 years and they just keep chugging along and that is amazing that is great but that's not the reality for most of people right like most people it's build a system and then keep it running and keep updating it and keep patching it and so on and so forth and keep it secure and if you have ex- if any of you have experience and on that in like a bigger picture scenario then shoot us a message because i, I would, would love to hear of your experience okay anything else alan here you feel we should be talking about yeah i mean it's, it's always kind of interesting that you brought this topic because i'm literally just doing an update today like i try to keep all those updates of depths into one commit so we kind of know where they come from which you know maybe some people say well maybe you should do like each dependency should be a separate commit then you know if that commit broke the next dependency is the problem right <laughs> that's one way to do it that's one way to do it yeah i would probably say and, and this is a good, good reason again so i something right like deep update dependencies and pushing that out as like one release probably not the worst idea because at the very least like then you can roll back that very easily again Right, like no business, no business rules changes, no potential migration. So if there is a breakage in there, you can just say, okay, let's roll back, let's figure out which dependency broke it, and then and we can do it again. But yeah, 
if you have very good reason to do do so differently, then should do it differently. But that, that would probably be my my, my my suggestion that you like you, uh, if if you do upgrade dependencies, then maybe do that decoupled from any business business rule changes from any business uh, logic changes in your application. Is that how you guys do? Yeah, because we have, like I said, we have this review day. Um, and an outcome of review, review day could very much be, in a, be a release also. Where we say, okay, we update a bunch of dependencies, we put it on stage, and maybe now add additional test cases for <laughs> things like that, right? To capture that seems to be running on final staging, let's push to production. Because then we're rolling back is a whole lot easier when you actually realize it's breaking. That would be my suggestion, at least. So to make it a bit more sane. Okay. Yeah, sounds sounds like a plan. Sounds good. And in general, beyond that, it's not Elixir specific, but um, honestly, like having this, this review day on a regular cadence in our calendars with a checklist just has been taking so much mental load of all of us because you don't have to keep in the back of your head, oh, dependencies, oh, it's outdated, maybe I should update it now, should I do it later, right? Like all of these kind of things. You're like, okay, we have a fixed date on the calendar where we look off all those kind of things. And that also means that like for all of the other days, I don't need to look at it. Right? I can just ignore it for now. I don't need to look at, at costs and, and Google Cloud. I don't need to look at, I don't know, like is this documentation still up to date. We have we have a thing, we have a point in time, we look at it and it's fine. That is like another big recommendation we've been making because since, since we've been integrating that, like, yeah, you can then make, the argument do you actually get all of the things done you maybe discover in, in that context you get it done do you get it done in a timely manner but that's a different process right like that's about okay how do you schedule and prioritize maintenance work that's a different thing entirely but just having this spot in the calendar this, this day where we say we all just sit down uh, look through those checklists do those things check it off on a regular cadence just helps with peace of mind to be honest <laughs> but, i'll probably do that everywhere once a month, right? But then you talk about I think we've, yeah, I think two we've, weeks. I think we've been doing it once a month, and I've, that is a very recent change because I, I was sick at that time, so I'm not entirely sure. But um, I think we changed the cadence to every second week. Now, it might be wrong though. But at the end of the day, whatever works for you, right? Yeah, I'm just curious about why you went from one every month to every. I think every we week. it was motivated. We did some some changes with our resource uh, requests in, in, in our, on our Kubernetes resources, right? Like so that we wanted to scale down our cluster because we figured okay we actually do pay a lot in compute costs more than we have to so how um, let's figure out what, what, how we can save money there and that, since that's one of the points on the agenda and we integrated the tool which i now actually want to pitch um oh, no, i'm gonna do it as a pick i'm gonna do it as a pick so we use a little tool there to like help us figure out okay how much what is like a good resource request thing here for the individual parts of our system so that like the the autoscaler for, for google cloud for the managing benefits that it can do its job. But yeah, I think that was the motivation behind reducing the cadence. So like having it a bit more often to see, okay, how is that been impacting our cost estimations and, and can we do better? Uh, from, from what I've seen so far, we are already saving, I think, like something like 2000 uh, bucks per month, which is nice. <laughs> so yeah, actually wanted to ask our CTO if we could uh, kind of say, hey, we did this, we save quite a, quite a bit of money per month. Maybe we can, like I don't know, like take 10% of that for some cool tooling. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, we did that on our own volition. So like nobody told us to do that. So we saved, saved money for the company without anybody explicitly telling us to do so. So maybe we can have some for cool tools, <laughs> but let's see. Okay, Alan, then I would say let's, let's talk about picks. Yep. So that's on me, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been playing a new game called uh, Sleeping Dogs. Isn't that super old? Well, it's Peggy new. Eighteen. It's new to me. But it, 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 it was originally released on on Xbox 360, right? Sleeping Dogs. 
Yeah, it's uh, released 2014 or something. Or I don't know, this one says 2014, definitive edition. Yeah, like, as I told you before, I just got Steam Deck, right? So I'm starting to catch up on all the old games. Well, actually, well, the reason that I wanted to pick this one is it's based in Hong Kong, where I live, right? So it's quite interesting to see some stuff and, and hear the Cantonese and recognize some of it. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Kind of has a has a thing for me. And they have an expansion pack that actually takes place in my district, which I thought was really interesting also. So uh, yeah, I've just been playing it since yesterday. I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of a lot of fun. The like it's based on like a real gang over here. They just switched the names around. Which, have you ever played the game? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm aware. It's about, okay. I'm aware what it's about. About this undercover cop, like going into yeah. this, into this He's gang. He's undercover right? cop. He grew up in Hong Kong, went to US, became like a US cop in like San Francisco or something. And he came back and uh, he's undercover and most of his friends, like he was in a gang when he was younger. I just started playing it, so I, I don't really know all of it. But yeah, the only thing that sucks about it is that it's not, you don't you don't have Cloud cloud Sync for the Sid games, which sucks because I'm playing on different platforms sometimes. So that's the only thing I don't like about it. Otherwise, it's been kind of fun. The combat's not that great, but I just think the story is quite interesting. And uh, he's got a lot of character to him. So I think it's a pretty cool game. So if you like games, I think the history of this game is that it was supposed to be the third in like, you know, do you remember the, uh, was it called Streets of LA or something like that? No, sorry. I forgot the name of the game now. It There was actually three games. I forgot the first one, but the second one I think was called like Streets of LA or... I have the cover in my head, but I forgot the name of the game. This is the third one, but then like they, they decided to do their own thing. I think they lost the license or something. So it's interesting to see that. But in general, yeah, it's it's quite a lot of fun. So if you like GTA, kind of like... Well, not even GTA because you don't really steal cars as far as I know. Yeah, I don't know. Check it out. I think it's pretty cool. It's an old game. It's on Steam for... I don't know what that is. 154 Hong Kong dollars. So it's like, what? 20-something US dollars, I think. I think it's uh, fun so far. Nice. I've actually, fun, fun little story there. Uh, I recently gifted my old Xbox 360 away. We have this little like a Facebook group here my wife is in, which is basically you can put in things to give to people because they say, I don't need it anymore. And they can, it needs to be gifted anything. And like, I had this thing right lying around for like, I don't know, three years because it's a PS4 and a PS5. I don't need it anymore. And I did, have sleeping dogs as one of the games, which is, but I never played it. <laughs> so I had like lying around. You bought the game, but never played it. <laughs> yeah, that, that never happens to me. Like uh, it's a very rare occurrence that I buy a game and then don't play it. Yeah, I, it's it's a lot of fun. I quite like it. It's like I said, it rings a little bit more to me because I live over here. So some of the stuff is like definitely true. So cool about your side. Yeah. What is my pick for this week? Because I want to pick one little software tool which actually has been helping us a lot in this cost optimization I mentioned earlier, and that is Goldilocks. And Goldilocks is basically like a thing you integrate into your cluster and it's monitoring resource usage for the individual components, for the individual deployments of the pods, and then helps you figure out, okay, what are the right resource requests you use? You can you can set up for these components, for, for, for these um, pieces in your cluster uh, because it just looks at them over a while and sees, okay, what are the spikes? What, how much memory does it use? And everett, blah, blah. So it like, helps you find, find the sweet spot. And honestly, the name is just amazing because I'm, I'm also a space nerd and uh, the Goldilocks zone is also the is the word for the area around a star in which a planet needs to be to have liquid water, which is at the moment the assumption necessary to sustain life, you know? So like liquid water is one of the things we assume is necessary that life can develop on a planet. So the kind of the Goldilocks zone is the zone in which a planet could potentially sustain life. <laughs> and outside of that, it's either too cold or too hot, so no liquid water, right? So yeah, and gold, Goldilocks for Kubernetes kind of kind of makes sense. I, I love the naming on this one. Um, so check it out. 
Because honestly, before that, getting these resource requests right is like, I don't know, it's like a dark, dark art, black magic. <laughs> I don't know, how much do I need, right? So um, having a tool like this, which just monitors your applications over a duration and then tells you, hey, based on what I've seen so far, this is probably like a good setup. That's just nice. Yeah, that is, that is my, my engineering pick for this week. And beyond that, is there anything else I'd like to pick? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, like I picked, I'm just going to repick something from last week because I still have a lot of fun with it, uh, which is Sifu, uh, a game I've been playing a lot lately. It's also not un, not unsimilar to to Sleeping Dogs in the sense that it's uh, also like a very combat heavy and also like very martial arts heavy game. And Sifu is basically, and last week I I, I, I did the name wrong. It's a Bruce Lee. It's basically like a Bruce Lee movie for, for playing yourself because it's like it's, it's, it's kung fu revenge story kind of cliche thing but it just has this combat system which is super deep that you can really dig your teeth into and it has this neat little roguelite mechanic where the premise is basically that the main character has like this magical pendant which when they die revives them but ages them uh, for beginning one year and then more, more often you die the more it ages you, right? Like for each death, you get like an additional year. So like the first time one year, then you get second years older, three years older, four years older, so on and so forth. But there's also like checkpoints in the game where the death counter gets reduced by one. And you kind of need to defeat the bad guy throughout multiple levels without, well, kind of dying of old age, so to speak. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And it's also fun to see how you get better because inevitably um, you will have to replay old levels and it's just fun to see like when maybe the first time you got through that level your character was what like 45 and then the next time you are 33 and then at some point you're like ah, i just like you start you start at 20 and then the next time you're like 20 and then you go all 20 like easy peasy lemon squeezy right just because you you kind of got better at the game so yeah if, you, if you're looking for something which is just mechanically appealing not that not a big story but has a very nice and very very um, fluid and very dynamic combat system then then this is maybe something you might want to look out for it's a lot of fun i picked it last week already but i'm still very much very much in love in love with it so yeah those are my two picks for the week okay alan as usual it was a pleasure what are you doing on your laptop? Yep. I see. I see you clicking. I was <laughs> just looking to see the Sifu game. Ah, it's also very stylish. Sifu, so right? S I F U. S I F U. Yeah, okay, it's also yeah. super stylish. So this it gets gets very yet. very trippy in the later levels, but like in a good way. This is coming soon on Steam. You got it on Steam or you got it somewhere else? I, I got it on PS Five. Ah, okay. Okay, then thank you, folks, for listening. Thank you, folks, for sticking around for so long and listening to Alan and me rambling about dependencies and ethics and morals <laughs> and saying no. <laughs> and tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye. <laughs>